what we had shared and shared from day one was that we were a collaboration of individuals. There was no, we didn't have titles and we all uh, carved up the responsibilities of running and building our own business, our own firm. Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jory Calkins, the founder and CEO of Enduring Companies and the host of Built to Outlast, a podcast and community for business builders by business builders. We explore the journeys and companies of business builders in America with a focus on traditional small to mid-sized business niches and the strategies which enable them to endure and flourish. If you are building a business now or aspire to build one in the future, this is for you. To join the Built to Outlast community and access episodes, show notes, and other community resources to support your journey, please visit builttooutlast.com. If you have or know a business that may be sold and care who the buyer is, or if you want to buy or build a business and care who you do it with, please visit enduring.co to learn more about us, our long-term approach, and our holding company. Welcome, everyone, for our show today. We're speaking with Carl Fehrenbach, who's a friend and the co-founder and chairman of the High Meadows Foundation, prior to which he was the co-founder of Berkshire Partners, a well-known private equity fund, and the chairman of the Environmental Defense Fund. Carl, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jory. I'm very excited for this conversation today for a number of reasons. You've been a great friend and mentor over the years. But in addition to that, you've been involved in not only building one, but multiple substantial organizations. And so very excited for us to have that conversation and learn more about those and, you know, the journey of building those. But prior to that, would love to, I know there's a lot more that goes into a person than the organizations that they're involved in building. And so just wanted to start with your story, wherever, you know, you're comfortable starting with your journey, or whether it was, you know, minute one or day one or hour one or year one or year five. I believe you were uh, originally from the Northeast, but would love to hear about that. And then we can go from there. Talking about myself is not one of my favorite things to do, so I um, I may stumble around a bit, but I was born in the early 1940s in in North Carolina, where um, my father uh, was working during the war, during the Second World War, in a critical industry, which was textile. They were producing fabric, which was used in parachutes. It was a family business, and and when the war was over. 1946, we moved to uh, New Jersey, and uh, he began working out of out of New York. And they, uh, of course, had to had to evolve the business from its wartime footing to the period that came afterwards. And uh, amongst the things that had happened, which changed their business materially, is was the development uh, first by the uh, by the Dupont Company of Nylon. So that during the war, they had gone from making silk, which was the original business of Leon Fehrenbach, to, to producing now synthetic fabrics. And then what followed after the war was rayon, and rayon became a primary fabric, and particularly in the car- carpet industry, uh, starting in the 50s, I guess. And so anyway, I were in central New Jersey, and he was commuting in, and it was still fairly rural. And it changed a lot in the next uh, 14 years, <laughs> and uh, which was maybe not surprising. But in the 60s, the development of the interstate highway system, which uh, happened not very far from where our house was, my parents eventually moved. But in any case, that was the where we began. 
I went away to school at age 14, and basically that was sort of it for New Jersey, and then to college, and then to, after a stint in the Marine Corps, uh, to New York to work for a bank, and, uh, which was sort of the found, uh, what was suggested to me would be a foundational place to start uh, a business career. Before we go there, I'd love to hear if, if you're open to it a little bit more about that experience growing up around that business and watching that business. And was it your father's business or he was involved with it? Or it sounded like you all were fairly involved with that business. So I'd love to hear how that kind of, if and how that Im- impacted your thinking about kind of business building. And <laughs> Well, you know, he was, um, it was interesting because he was the uh, youngest of uh, three brothers. As they often laughingly said, he was the afterthought. Uh, he came uh, something like nine or ten years after his his second oldest brother, and I think his real interest was in was in the sciences, in the life, and the the uh, physical sciences. And he had um, after he graduated from college in 1937 and had gone to work at the um, in on the on the Cape uh, in Woods Hole at the Oceanographic Institute. Then he was, I think, my, he and my mother married in 1940. So I think the uh, earning a living became <laughs> more important, but also the war clouds were out there and they were already producing product. The, the company was located in, in uh, the physical facilities uh, were located in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. And its history went back to several generations to just dealing in the silk trade in the United Kingdom or in Europe, basically, but they were in, in Edinburgh and then migrated after the Civil War to the to the U.S. And, but so there were there was some science history, I guess, in the family. I'm not sure I ever understood that. And he was really interested in in and and followed uh, throughout his life what was evolving in in the physical sciences and life sciences and but. Um, duty called, and in that generation, duty was really important, and and so he went to work for the family business, and um, in the um, early fifties, probably, I guess the other partner in Leon Fehrenbach uh, passed, and and uh, he became the CEO. His his other two brothers, one was the CFO, and the other was had overseen planned activities and had helped them move from uh, Wilkes-Barre or open a new facility in Johnson City, Tennessee, which was, which today is a very vibrant place just on the west side of the Appalachians, but, but the, uh, wasn't in those days. That was a true, true family business. It was and remained. Uh, they sold it in 1969 to a, uh, when his two brothers were both out of it and they were just trying to figure out what to do with family interests. And it's, to a conglomerate, Chromaloy American Corporation. And for several years, he ran Chromaloy's textile businesses, which was one of their core businesses. And then he retired somewhere in his early 60s, I think. He said, I've been doing this for 35 years. I've had enough. And uh, <laughs> they, um, they had succession. And interestingly, I don't know, maybe 10 years later, 10, 12 years later, his, one of his nephews uh, bought it back. And then they went on and continued to operate. It's been sold again, I gather. I'm not sure exactly. You know, anyway, it's a long, a long journey for all of that. But what a cool story. I heard more than once that 
probably I didn't want to go into that business. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. I never felt I never felt any any pressure to go into the business. When you left home at fourteen, were you were you going to school then? Was that a board? Uh, did you end up going to boarding school or? Yeah, I went. I went away to school. Right, exactly. And and I Got worked it. summers and and then same for college, basically. Got it. You were in the. Am I remembering right? You mentioned you were in the Marines for a little bit. Was that as part in, in college or after college or? It was after college. Nineteen sixty four, and the the um, Vietnam was not really on the horizon and um but there was a draft military draft and and uh so how you it wasn't a question whether you were going to serve it was a question of how and i wanted to get to work so the option i chose was to enlist in the marines and the marine reserve so that that required six months of active duty and then uh five and a half years of basically weekends and summer camps and and the but then of course vietnam came along and uh, for whatever reasons, and there was in the Johnson administration, first the Kennedy and then the Johnson administration. Johnson never uh, mobilized the Second Marine Division, but it did. The fact that it was possible sort of froze life planning in place until that obligation had been fulfilled, which was not the, not till 1970. So I worked for the bank. It was not really my profession. Were you an investment? Banker at that point is that was that a no no um, was a, profession was a tradition the, the banking industry was very different then it was small a big bank had a billion dollars of assets that's um, starter money for people in this world today so it was it was commercial lending that was no connection to investment banking at all the investment banking industry in that era was a group of small partnerships basically they were all effectively. Uh, partnerships, none, none were public. And the retail side and the investment banking side or underwriting side were completely, were in completely separate firms. So there was a you know, traditional group of investment banks and, and then the commercial banks, which were just effectively doing commercial loans. And some of those were wholesale and some were more retail. So I was with, a, with Bankers Trust Company, which was a wholesale um, institution. But when I could, I left and went to business school and, and then went back to, in the early 70s, went back to, uh, went to Wall Street then. I was really interested in management as opposed to being a banker. But Wall Street in those days was entirely a, um, a producer culture. So you had to understand how you were going to contribute to the revenue of the overall firm. So I moved to the banking after a year or so, I was sort of hired in the in the what was called the uh, assistant to the chief executive role. He didn't need one, and so I was basically had a year of sort of wander around and figure out what they did there. And then um, in the I guess by the mid seventies, there was no you know Wall Street had not evolved on the banking on the investment banking side into sort of different buckets, if you will. And uh, so the merger and acquisition business, the advisory business was literally just kind of becoming a business. So that really intrigued me because I was interested in management strategy. And, and uh, so I learned as much as I could. And then and we started an M&A department. I changed firms and went to White Welding Company. And uh, then White Weld, uh, a couple of years later, White Weld had Amongst other things, had um, 
build a, a relationship with the, I'm trying to remember exactly what the institution was. It was Saudi Arabia. This was the period in which um, oil went from $3 a barrel to $30 a barrel. And suddenly the Saudis were collecting enormous amounts of money and trying to figure out what to do with it. And, uh, and partnered with, uh, with White Weld, later with uh, First Boston and Credit Suisse. But White Weld was acquired in 1978 by Merrill Lynch. And at that point, the merger business was really turning into a business. Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and First Boston and Lehman and Lazard had made it into uh, very successful lines of business in Merrill which was building a very strong traditional corporate finance business that was involved in, capitalized on its ability to distribute securities, wanted to be also in, in the wholesale side of banking. And it created an opportunity for me, sort of the generation ahead of me at White Weld all didn't want to be bankers at Merrill Lynch, and they were all recruited by uh, other firms, which opened up the opportunity for me. And then, so I got to um, to build a merger business on the back of Merrill Lynch, which was, and they were great. They were very supportive. And probably got you closer to the strategic and management thinking that you, you know, were interested in. And then what, uh, because we did not have, we had some very good client, the firm had some very good client relationships, but they were turning to the traditional uh, wholesale banks if they had a major transaction. Merrill was not, did not have a reputation for being a um, an advisor in that arena. So, you know, how do you persuade those major corporations that they should work with you? And 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 sometimes they did. But then this interesting and then very new sort of form of, of transaction acquisition called leverage buyout popped up in the late 70s and early 80s. Colbert, Kravis, and Roberts were uh, doing it at Bear Stearns and, uh, and then spun out of Bear Stearns. And um, Brian Little, who had been a great friend at, at White Welding Company, partnered with um, with two brothers to form Forceman Little. And uh, that sort of suddenly there was capital available, uh, first from the life insurance industry, interestingly enough, and uh, and then subsequently from others. And, and uh, so uh, the fund structure uh, began to pop up. And it struck us that being in a position to advise companies that these kinds of transactions could be beneficial to them or to or within their existing corporate structures became an attractive uh, line of business. And, you know, what was happening, broadly speaking, just as we were going into the 80s, the 60s and 70s had featured uh, conglomerates. The, by 1980 and by the end of this long period of inflation in the 70s, the uh, conglomerate, the sort of um, bloom was off of that rose. And there were a lot of businesses resident inside the conglomerates that were sort of lost or weren't core focus or weren't performing. They, was, they, were, they represented an opportunity. And the other place there was opportunity was the war vets who had come back from the war, started a business in the in the 40s, and um, 30 years later, we're wrestling with uh, what to do with that business. With you know, did they have heirs, or uh, should they sell it, or what should they do? And the idea that you could do a quote unquote an LBO, a leverage buyout, 
and uh, the existing team could effectively liquidate or liquefy their commitment, but also create a way for the people that uh, they had hired and brought along in that business and valued to become owners. And uh, so the leverage buyout was a transaction that was attractive from that point of view. And it was feasible then because, um, you know, as opposed to the valuations that we have had in the markets here for the last 20 years, really, things then were valued at five times or six times EBIT, not even EBITDA. And um, the uh, most of the businesses uh, had sufficient assets that you, to permit a bank to lend you roughly 80% to 90% of the purchase price. So the LBO firms were, were contributing relatively small amounts of capital. And oftentimes, a substantial portion of the debt could be retired just from much more efficient working capital management then. So that was sort of the start of it. Wow. And so you were initially involved on the advisory side, but but you were seeing some of your contemporaries kind of spinning out and in, in doing this. At that point, what was your kind of thought process? Did it feel like that, you know, this is a no-brainer, or did it feel like, hey, this is a risk, but you know, is aligned with where I want to go? Or what was your mindset at that point? The business theory was quite straightforward. It was um, replacing an ownership structure in which the people who operated the business had no financial interest with one in which they did. So it was creating incentives and it was aligning because you were doing a great deal of what you were doing with, uh, with credit, with, with debt. The ownership, combination of ownership and the need to focus on debt retirement and debt service meant that business strategies had to be very focused and very efficient. And you don't, you only create value where you primarily create value by growing. So investment had to go, you know, a lot of investment in the conglomerate era had just gone, you know, it wasn't clear strategic focus, let's say. And, and, um, <laughs> and the buyout structure forced operating management to have a very clear and very focused approach to operations and to be, you know, primarily addressing interest in operational improvement. And since um, they had relatively little capital available, that capital had to be used with a great deal of focus and efficiency. And, and um, so it proved to be a very good structure. In fact, the entrepreneurs who were running these businesses now as owners could do a nice job of growing the business. Uh, many of them succeeded. And that created the foundation for what became private equity. Initially, the thesis was the companies that you focused on were not big capital users, were cash generators, and there were opportunities to effectively invest the cash generated in the industry in which they already functioned. So you could grow uh, through internal investment. And uh, so those were the strategies. And the, uh, through the 80s, the common wisdom was that's what you those were the kinds of businesses that were appropriate for a leverage buyout. And um, as the 80s went forward, though, so I left, and then we eventually, the five of us, founded Berkshire. As the buyout structure became more common and began to attract more public interest and more press focus, and as there were some 
instances where those who didn't like it claimed that there was, you know, what the buyouts were, were just uh, a strip and flip strategy. Uh, so you go in, you strip the cash from the existing asset base and then flip the business at a profit. And uh, but that that did irreparable harm or irreparable damage to the business. If, to the extent that those existed at all, they were very rare. And um, you really, you know, you create value by finding good ways to grow a business and to continually improve its product and help build its management team and and build a strong reputation uh, with customers and eventually investors. And so that was, uh, we saw that opportunity in this structure that aligned interests, both financially and personally. And, and so we didn't think it was a big risk to start our own firm. The risk would be, could we raise capital from investors in order to uh, facilitate what we were doing? And how did you all know each other? Were you all Merrill together? Did you know each other from, you know, how did, how did you all come together and how did you all decide, you know, that you're, for lack of a better description, that your puzzle pieces, you know, fit together well in terms of, you know, different skills you all brought? There was a sixth party um, who had started his own firm working with, um, with Chris Clifford, who became one of the Berkshire partners. And, but his name is Tom Lee. And, and Tom was very much a risk taker and had been doing quote unquote bootstrap deals. And he had aligned himself with the other, the, the uh, four who became the other Berkshire founders. And, and uh, so what we, we, <laughs> what the five of us had in common was we had uh, gone to Harvard business school and, uh, but we worked with Tom for a couple of years. And then Tom wanted to go in a different direction than we did in terms of of his next step. And uh, so we divided what was the Thomas Lee company into, into his piece of it, which went on to be very successful and, and into Berkshire Partners. So at that time, you know, what did a, you shared kind of where multiples were and what they were of, but, you know, what were some of the challenge, you know, types of businesses you were looking at and what were some of the challenges in finding them and raising capital, you know, because I think it's very different than it is it was very different then than it is now. And so I'd love to just hear a little bit more about what that process kind of looked like and, and mechanistically, you know, what was involved with it. So you were committed to an industry or a sector if you uh, had done one deal and, and, and then now we're doing a second. There were no clear strategic sectors. There were no, then there were no specialties. It was opportunistic and the um, you needed to, put yourself in a place where you would be in the way of opportunities as they came along. So since the investment banks were building merger and acquisition businesses, merger and acquisition advisory businesses, that was, of course, one source. There were financial entrepreneurs who advised companies, smaller businesses primarily. You wanted to build relationships with those advisors, too, and to find sources. And then you wanted to use whatever relationships you had built with operating companies to just, you know, leverage off of their knowledge of their industry. That was it. There was not, there was not a tremendous amount of deep strategic thought that went into this is what we're going to do. This is what we're good at. This is, you know, this is how we're going to build our networks. And, and so it was very opportunistic. 
Yeah, recognizing the opportunity and putting yourself in the pathway of opportunity. I mean, that's insightful in and of itself and certainly not something that everyone saw and everyone did. Otherwise, you know, there were have been a bunch more people crowding the space that early on. So, and we were, you know, so we, we, we had done some, had some success um, in certain sectors of specialty retail, especially retail was becoming a sector, if you will. But we had success in, you know, first with Wisconsin Central, but then generally in um, the restructuring rail freight. And uh, it turned out rail freight in the English-speaking world. So we, because we privatized New Zealand rail and, um, and then British rail freight business and a railroad in Australia. And, and there were, so there were a few others who were successful in that sector too. It needed uh, the kind of creative private capital that, and it, you know, had been an industry. Uh, so the, the retail side just needed to grow uh, with focus and build around a really good uh, merchant and, and uh, entrepreneurial driver who could then, you know, create and uh, roll out product. And uh, the rail business needed a real focus on better operations, getting out from under bureaucratic structures, moving away from the uh, traditional union relationships to uh, relationships in which uh, the workforce was aligned with uh, the business rather than with the union. Although we had very good union uh, relationships in um, in both New Zealand and in the UK. But in any case, that was that it just needed that restructuring and energy because otherwise it was a very good business so once the unnecessary additional cost structure had been reorganized the the business had a real opportunity to grow and then the challenge became how do you you know what sectors can you grow in how do you can you compete successfully with road with trucks and all of that but two very different industries but that was sort of the uh the nature of the beast then I'd love to hear a little bit more about, and I'm excited to dig into to, and learn more about some of these businesses and how you all found them, and but also the the business of you know Berkshire Partners itself, you know, because I think you all started with one fund, and you said the 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 capital was at that point was coming from life insurance companies, but over time, those you know, I think you're very modest and won't toot your own horn, but you you all did you know, from my understanding, phenomenally well, and you know, over a nut series of funds kind of built up that capital base. So I'd love to hear about kind of the kind of some of those formative stages of building the platform itself. And then would love to dig into one or two, maybe the rail business or a few of the businesses that you all were involved in that you'd be open to, you know, just talking about um, those businesses as well. I guess the stretch in the 80s so that we were, we created effectively recreated the, what was the Thomas Lee Company into, into the Berkshire piece in the mid-80s. And then the 80s were a very opportunistic time, but they were a time in which the economy was growing, was re-energized, the Reagan Revolution, you know, all of that was happening. And then that was interrupted in 1990, the first Gulf War. There was a, a mild recession. Uh, but there was actually a serious banking issue then, that uh, did not get a lot of public play, but was there were some risks there, and the the banks were um, subjected by by regulators basically to pulling back, 
And then the the LBOs had gotten so much negative press that there was kind of a you know period around 1990 when it was stop, catch your breath. And we had uh, one or two portfolio companies, a couple of portfolio companies that were in trouble. So we worked, had to work through those. And then what emerged on the other side was private equity. So it's rebranded. It's the same thing's happening with ESG these days. It's going to be rebranded. And it became much more professionalized. Interestingly, the life insurance industry, which is state regulated, but prudential and equitable life insurance and Metropolitan and uh, New York Life had been major lenders to less than investment grade credits uh, for a long time. Primary source of of debt capital to for private placements. You went to the life companies, and the life companies had a lot of uh, commercial real estate exposure at that time, and then they had these uh, less than investment grade investments and their regulators tightened up on them considerably. They were concerned about their capital structures. And so the life industry was regulated out of it, basically. Not completely. Northwestern Mutual was another great one. Not completely. And and um, and they came back. Uh, but Prudential took a big step back. New York Life and Northwestern Mutual and, and some others didn't. Interestingly, uh, AIG at that in that time, which wasn't a life company, but emerged as as an interesting lender, and it had not been an active participant in the um, in the less than investment uh, great credit markets, and and uh, became a very active participant in the nineties. And but at that point, a number of large state retirement systems were looking for for improved returns on their portfolios. KKR in particular just did a great job of, of um, working with states like it was then the state of Washington, the state of Oregon, and then some others, and bringing them into the, into the capital structures as investors in their funds, and, and then others. So Wisconsin, Michigan. When we did our, our second fund, uh, that's we went there and then the other group that began to uh, show some interest, led basically by Dave Swenson at Yale, were the um, universities, the top university, the largest university endowments, and uh, who were also looking for asset diversification in their case, and believed that they could earn high returns in, in this sector. So the market, the capital uh, supply in the market evolved, began to evolve quite rapidly in the 90s. And so we were there then. So that was, uh, it turned out to be great for us too. And then there was, uh, I don't know, our fund three, I think it was our fund three, which was the 1992 fund, had a, I've forgotten, 37% rate of return net to the investor or something like that. So there was uh, was a period in which everything was up and um and we 37 were, is uh, that's pretty uh participating and, and don't hold me to that number <laughs> but it's, it was in that range yeah uh, and what um were there one or two businesses in that or other other funds that were kind of either returns wise or just you know experience and and you know fun journeys with the business that stand out to you as you know the one certainly you know you mentioned the rail uh, and the freight 
business? You know, is that maybe one of them or were there a couple that? So the retail and subsequently consumer sectors, uh, there were a couple of places where we had success. And then our first tower deal, Castle Tower, was in that stretch, was in Fund 3. So I've forgotten. So, so some of these things went over into Fund 4. So for those who don't, uh, don't know or don't remember, the, the, um, so with wireless, our first stage in wireless uh, was, you, some of you may remember, a big, a big handset that kind of nested in the middle of, in the middle of your, your vehicle between the driver and the passenger and uh, was analog, not digital. Had, had limited range, although the 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 um, analog signal uh, would broadcast out of a out of a tower location would cover a thirty five mile radius. Um, so that you know an, an analog was quite an efficient way to actually do the first generation of build of build. But what happened then, right in the early nineties, was the development of uh, the next generation of capability and uh, which was digital and second g second generation which was all voice that produced the uh, motorola flip phone <laughs> and other uh handy devices so suddenly we had something that was small followed pretty quickly by the blackberry and uh the blackberry in its early generations was not a phone uh but it was an email device and so you could be on the networks well the the big networks were uh, also just becoming into through, through mergers in the in the telecom world were coming into uh, being and eventually ended up being Verizon and AT and T and then the the uh, early stage interlopers and the inside of the telecom world the growth function was dependent on two things one was the engineering side or the you know building the infrastructure and the other was uh, marketing and building customer capability and customer relationships. And it, it turned out they didn't all have enough capital to do both, but they wanted to be there and they needed market share. So one way to move some of the capital off off of the corporate uh, balance sheet was to, to not be responsible for, for the towers. So don't spend $200,000 to put up a site with just your equipment on it. So the business model that we became involved with answered that question by saying, great, we'll rent it to you for $1,500 a month. And yes, we'll have other carriers' equipment on our site. It won't interfere with yours. And so your costs will be lower. And so our, and our economic model is to have two or three carriers and a couple of uh, 911s and other local uh, rent payers on, on our sites. And then to build out a site structure that enables your, your network to be completely integrated. And uh, so the, you know, one of the big problems at that point in time was, you, was drop calls. And you, know, you lost your call because it didn't go from one antenna set to the next antenna set because there wasn't a tower. Or there wasn't a place to put the equipment, and um, and the equipment is you know was you know a repeater up on the up on the tower, and and your uh, transmission equipment uh, in a building at the base of the tower, 
And um, so how could you could you create a shared model that was completely, you know, uh, client neutral in terms of the um, transmission? And the answer was, yeah. And uh, so uh, that turned out to be a fantastic business. But it, when we started and started doing that, there were a lot of there were real doubts in the firm about doing it. It was very entrepreneurial. We were still a small business, uh, a couple of million of EBITDA, something like that. Crown Castle was uh, Crown when we bought Crown, but also we in a sub in a separate transaction that we later merged into Crown Castle was we bought the BBC's um, broadcast. Uh, towers. There were 37 gigantic, what the Brits called mosts, uh, located around the country <laughs> that that uh, transmitted the uh, the television and radio broadcasting of, of the uh, of the BBC, and and did not. Uh, and so there were other there was other equipment on those sites, but not very much. And the telecom companies hadn't located on it at all, and they were building relatively small transmission towers. Um, you know, Farmer Jones's field and putting some equipment in in urban centers and and uh, and as I recall, there were five. I think there were five telecoms that were doing wireless in the '90s in the UK. So in any event, we had that you know just that entire sort of confluence that led up to the uh, the next generation, which came around the the Y2K, the turn of the century, in Generation Three, and then began to take us to where wireless is today, which is streaming basically everything you do. Yeah, that's fascinating. What an interesting time and business to be in at that time in particular. It's kind of an inflection point. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah. You know me, I could talk forever about these businesses, but I, I want to make sure we also leave plenty of time to, to talk about some of the other things you've been involved in building too, because not only have you been involved in, in building up these businesses and in Berkshire, but involved in the High Meadows Foundation and in the Environmental Defense Fund. So I'd, can you, you know, I know there were a number of years between becoming more involved in those and uh, while you're still at Berkshire, but maybe provide, a, you know, a quick overview of the balance of, you know, the time where you were solely focused on Berkshire and then transition to how you got involved with, you know, the EDF and, and some of the other things you've been involved in, because I know that's been a pretty substantial effort and organizations as well. Back on the Berkshire front, one of the, uh, it, well, it took us a few years to sort of get around to doing this. What, what we had shared and shared from day one was that we were a collaboration of individuals. There was no, we didn't have titles and we all uh, carved up the responsibilities of running and building our own business, our own firm. And it was all shared. And it was all shared equally, and it was all completely shared shared effort. And so our core values, which we eventually actually uh, put in writing, were, you know, apart from building around evaluations, I guess, of, of uh, character and integrity in managers, we were, our core values for the firm were uh, collaboration and, you know, and growth through development and investment, and therefore focus on on industries uh, and industry opportunities that where uh, we could bring those uh, skills to the to what we were doing. And our goal was to try to provide the management of the companies in which we were the primary investor 
in their development process. So we could bring capital to that uh, discussion. But uh, over time, we also wanted to bring management skills and approaches that that they could use, not that we were going to undertake ourselves, but that they could use. So we could provide those through through several channels from our own network of managers, through deep relationships that we were building with major consulting firms, and through the the information processes that you develop with the, in the financial networks that are providing capital, uh, because they're seeing across a whole broad uh, landscape of what's going on. And, and uh, so that was our approach to the business then, and we were building a team and staff, basically generations of new hires, where the goal was that they would grow into our role. And um, they they would become full partners, and we kept sharing the economics of the firm that way. So it was always a, it was never a, you know the first generation gets everything and then passes it on to the next generation and so on. It was always a collaboration. It was always growth. The the, the firm meeting was our event that took place every Monday, and everybody participated. Now, by the time we retired, uh, or I retired, and Chris Clifford retired by, you know, in the sort of 2010s, the firm had gotten too big for that structure to continue, and they've since completely restructured. Uh, and the business had become too competitive and too many players and too much focus to not be specialists. But, but that was our approach and our values were, therefore, around collaboration on the one hand and uh, character and integrity on another hand, and on the ability of a given business in a certain industry to be able to differentiate and to be to operate successful. That's Michael Porter's five uh, forces were a sort of core approach that we held up each of our portfolio companies to over time. So as we got into the 2000s, and, and there were many more participants, and it was more competitive. The differentiating around management skills became an increasingly important part of it, of what we were doing. But we also had, we were in that point at Fund 5 or Fund 6, so we had been doing our thing for some time at that point, 20 years or, and more, 25. And, and we decided that we would have, you know, each of us had a set of different set of outside interests. And uh, we weren't going to make that a part of Berkshire. We were going to uh, pursue those interests separately and individually. I mean, we would share, but that was that was the approach we decided to take. So we did so, you know, but, but for a bunch of years, starting in the late 90s, I guess. Uh, I mean, Russ Epker went in and really, really raised the game uh, at the Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston, for instance, and really we really made a difference. And for a while, we seconded him full time there. His son today is a key uh, operative at, at Boys and Girls Clubs. And the um, Richard Lubin famously had uh, parking places allocated to him at every of the every major healthcare center in Boston, I think, uh, <laughs> at some point, <laughs> uh, because of his interest in that sector and his contributions there. And so, so we all had this, and ours was the environment, Judy's and mine was 
was the environment and climate, uh, became climate, basically. Had that been of interest for a while, or was that something you all became interested in? Well, how did that, because I know that is a very meaningful part of what you've you know, spent your life impacting. And so how did you, how did you all decide that was you know, where you wanted to spend your, your time and your effort and your, your resources? Because we had, in particular, you know, had led a off in office citified business career, but we had both grown up in in uh, in a period when well the population of the United States was less than half of what it is today. Is so more rural environments the the uh, the you know conservation of and concern for what was our natural environment was just something that we had grown up with. And the word environmentalist was not part of the, not not part of our language set anyway. They, but it was interesting to us. And so in uh, 1988, I guess we had bought our first uh, piece of land in old farmhouse uh, here in Vermont, and the uh, and we were just sort of adding on. And um, Judy's background in landscape had led her to think about how what we did with. But what we had in this uh, land, the, our history here, I guess, was that uh, going back to the middle of the 18th century, the, as people came up the river and, and carved out farms, they went to the hilltops because it got warmer on the hilltops sooner. So if you were going to farm, you, you know, you were better off here in wonderful Vermont. And, so, and then they began clearing. So there's no old growth forest in Vermont. And they had just they basically cleared everything and ran cheap. And that so the all the stone walls you see were basically individuals who with, with a workhorse and a sled were clearing rocks in a field. And then the you know, they were raising sheep. So in the middle of the nineteenth century, the woolen industry uh, moved, began to move away, but eventually moved south. And as it did, the um, if you didn't evolve into other Parts of farming like dairy, which happened in other parts of the state and in the Champlain Valley, and the, the, then um, basically the far over time in the 20th century, the forest grew back in. So we were, you know, we didn't think there was any environmental or ecological negative to our going back to what the what it looked like in the 18th century. So we were clearing and cleaning and creating fields, and then eventually, I guess. We had some horses and things like that, and that, and um, it was generational change, and let more land became available. So we were increasingly in that. By the by, the late nineties, we were beginning to just sort of say, "So, what, what are we doing? Something bad?" We were we were downwind from the Ohio River Valley uh, and the predominant weather patterns at that time, which came through the Southwest, and so we were down downriver from. The, uh, the fundamental creations of, of acid rain. And um, they had the Sox and Ox, so nitrous oxide and, and, um, and other negative uh, pollutants were addressed in the amendments to the Clean Air Act in 1990. And that took time to cycle in. So we were still experiencing that kind of a concern. And uh, when just happenstantially, I was um, introduced to Fred Krupp by John Hill Wilson, who was uh, had been a longtime Morgan Stanley partner and was chairing the Environmental Defense Fund board. And we had a very 
interesting set of conversations sort of around this, what, you know, what were we experiencing? What were they doing? How were they thinking about it? How would cap and trade come into being? How had it worked? And um, at the, there were still, a, there were $30 million, not even then organization. And, and um, but their, um, one of their ways of, of recruiting supporters was um, to take people on a, on a river trips from the Grand Canyon annually did that and uh so we did that in 1999 and um it turned out to be great made some wonderful friends uh and that was our introduction to edf they subsequently invited me to join the board judy was happy to have that happen and um so that's where that went and then a, a couple of years later i was uh, invited to join the Princeton board and focused with the university on its environmental footprint. And so between the two of them, uh, they became sort of the core of what spawned the rest of High Meadows. I know many people probably know about the Environmental Defense Fund and the EDF, but can you share just at a high level how that organization has grown from, you know, the kind of 30 to maybe even sub $30 million organization when you we're first becoming involved over time, you know, through great efforts from the team and everyone involved, you know, how it's grown over time. In 2000, climate change was on their radar. I mean, the, the sort of modern history of climate change was um, a, um, a scientist by the name of Hansen, who in 1988 testified before Congress that we had arrived at a point where the greenhouse gas effect was raising ambient temperatures. You know, at that point in time, sort of nobody got it <laughs> or didn't want to get it or didn't think it was going to be a problem. Didn't probably not yet. A, uh, I mean, what he was posing would, would have been a threat to the oil and gas industry or to the use of fossil fuels and coal. But it was not proposed as such. And but that was the, the beginning. So by 2000, organizations like EDF were aware of the science. We're science-based and we're science-committed, but we're still relatively small in terms of throw weight um, at a public level. We could certainly uh, lobby, didn't have C4s at that time. In other words, politically active um, entities separate from their primary uh, not-for-profit activity. And, and uh, so, so they were just beginning to form from an organizational and strategic perspective, what to do about this problem. That's only 23 years ago now. But it then went from there. But but building donors around climate change, you know, the environment as it was in people's minds at that time was more focused on uh, conservation, land conservation, land use, the cleaning up water, you know, the famous burning river in Cleveland, Cuyahoga River, and all of that was still very much in people's memories then. And, and so the environmental practices and, and toxic chemicals and, you know, all the, that element. And the, um, so the greenhouse gas effect and, and uh, emissions were, uh, were part of it, but they were just one piece. And EDF then was divided up into, um, I don't think we called it climate. Was addressing that, addressing oceans, addressing health consequences uh, from emissions, and addressing uh, biodiversity, and um, those were all 
four separate areas of of um, management focus, and then as you know, over the next twenty years, climate emerged as the core piece of it all, and everything today is organized around uh, around climate, effectively, and the consequences. All the oceans are getting warm, for instance, and uh, biodiversity has all been impacted by uh, climate effects, and and human health and animal health are all affected by by the warming climate. So climate became the so anyway, that was that's what we that's how the organization developed. I started chairing in, in 2008 or nine. Nick Nicholas was uh, the chair before me. And um, but I think, you know, our, the, the, the role of the board was to to support Fred and support the staff and in multiple different ways to help the organization grow and develop and become more effective. And so that from that era, the first decade of of this century that was the um you know that's where we were we grew from there and as we grew from there and became a you know a nine-figure operation now 300 million that the we also uh climate doesn't respect national boundaries you had to become global <laughs> the accepted norms uh for organizational growth and development became much more inclusive it, i mean the all good. The more people you have, uh, the more talents you can attract, the better you will be. So we've all benefited from uh, from that, from diversity. And the organizational norms of new generations, starting with the millennials, really required greater levels of engagement and conclusion with staff and uh, staff development. And so organizations like EDF have had to develop very good professional management skills that you find in our private economic institutions if, in order to succeed, in order to grow, succeed, and then in order to have public market and um, philanthropic uh, throw weight, if you will. So, I know we're coming up on time here. I want to be spe- respectful of yours, especially given how many things you have going on. But Thank you. And before I ask you kind of the, the closing question, I ask everyone, I just wanted to thank you for sharing some of the, you know, both the personal journey you've had, but also the impressive and expi- inspiring experience um, that you've had in building multiple of these organizations that have kind of been at, from the nascent state stages of not just those businesses, but also the movements or the industries that they're in to very successful outcomes in a number of regards. So I appreciate you taking the time and sharing. I know it's uh, you know not only interesting and, and helpful for me to hear, but I think for many others. So thank you for taking the time. The closing question I ask everyone is a two-part question, and it's kind of goofily modeled after, you know, in a convenience store when you can take a penny and leave a penny in a dish, you know, if someone needs a penny or someone needs to, or someone has an extra penny. But we try to do that with with everyone that, that I have on here. So the first thing would be to ask, you know, for you to, you know, leave something, leave a penny. Is there a specific business insight or, or a trick or a book or a habit that you've had that have allowed you to have, you know, some of the excess, success in, in, in building these organizations? And then the, the second part of the question will be the kind of the inverse of that. What can our community uh, help with in, in something that you're interested in? So would love to hear your thoughts on the first one. Is there a um, you know, something specific that 
you've had or used that could be helpful to others that are aspiring to build organizations? What we learned, and a lot of people always (laughs) doubted we could do, but what success, there are lots of individuals who somehow manage success, but for us, none of us was that good to be able to do everything on our own. And and, uh, so collaboration, working together, cooperation, not caring who got the credit was really essential, was, was core to how we did things. And it was just kind of who we were. So it was much more fun to work together. It was much more fun to work with your partners and subsequently future partners and staff and and then with others that we built relationships with. And, and so that network became essential. And so the key word, the key is to whatever it was that we accomplished was was collaboration. And I think that's true and and not as it's as true and not for profit, certainly. And it isn't always instinctively human. So making it a core value, this is who we are, this is what we do, this is how we make it work. And uh, you know, and when it comes up it's to uh, or comes down to a choice, you know, is it do I raise my hand and get the credit or do we as a group do something? Or do we all share and we don't take credit? You have to make a conscious decision that that's what you're going to do. And you'll have a lot more fun as a consequence. Or that's what I think we thought anyway. Yeah. <laughs> we had more fun. I, I agree with that. I agree with that. And, and I think, you know, folks can, can probably tell from the juxtaposition of the humility you're having in these conversations versus, you know, the success that you've had in building these organizations. Certainly you're... You're practicing what you're preaching uh, and your, your humility as well. So la- last question before we go, if our listeners or our community or the, you know, the Built Out Last platform could wave a wand and help you with one, something in any organization you're involved in or a role that one of the organizations is hiring for or you know, raising awareness, or what's something that we can be helpful with for you on? One of the great collaborations we're all going to have to engage in and the in coming years is going to be around addressing the uh, climate issues that we've brought upon ourselves. And, and uh, so how do we do that in a collaborative way? How do we do it? Because there, there will be successes that arise from it, uh, business successes, wealth successes, and there will be oxes that are gored. And the, uh, those whose traditions have been grounded in the amazing benefits that humans have gotten from fossil fuels, for instance, but now must, you know, th- that we must now do something serious about eliminating. Those who will suffer from that elimination will find it very difficult. So how do we, you know, what we need is the roadmaps, the, the paths to get people from through a very difficult change in a cooperative and collaborative way. And uh, we all have to share in that. Yeah, and it's a, um, it's a collective challenge, and so it needs to be a collective, you know, collaborative solution. Yeah. That's a great spot to end, Carl. Thank you so much, and, and uh, appreciate you taking the time. That's fun, Joy. Always is. Good to see you. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the episode. To join the Built to Outlast community and access episodes, show notes, and other community resources, please visit builttooutlast.com. 
If you have or know a business that may be sold and care who the buyer is or want to build a business and care who you do it with, please visit Enduring.co to learn more about us, our long-term approach, and our holding company. 